and, and boozes up the entire ICO, $30 million. And the police walk onto the yacht. And the police walk onto the yacht. It's booze and, and a whole lot of other stuff. <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street. And Rhino Horn. Yeah, just think Wolf of Wall Street. Lots and lots of Rhino Horn. So, lots of Rhino Horn, exactly. <laughs> so, the guy goes and blows the money, and the police walk onto the yacht and say, you're under arrest for taking this money and pulling a scam. It's not a scam, because he has no legal obligation to build what he promised he was going to build. So, you don't even... You raise money, you don't have any legal contract with a person that the token is ever going to be used. Which means, for you guys and for us, it means you have to do much more due diligence on the team, the roadmap, and the use case of the token because you don't, they don't have any legal obligation to you like equity or debt. Matt Brown, Matt Brown, Matt Brown. The Matt Brown Show. This is the Matt Brown Show. Matt Brown Show. Support for this podcast is proudly brought to you by the Park House of Events. Once the well-known IMAX theater, it has inherited elegant, transformable space and light, as well as an extremely high ceiling, which gives rise to excellent acoustics. The venue has been host to some of the largest global and local brands, global banking institutes, telecom companies, SA's largest ad agencies, fashion and lifestyle brands, magazines, international NGOs, design academies, JSE listed companies, premium motor companies, international TV networks, and the list goes on and it now includes Crypto, Joburg, and The Matt Brown Show. For more information about the Park House events, please reach out to Annie, that's A-N-N-I, at the Park on 7 the number 7com with the code Matt Brown Show and you you'll get the VIP treatment. Support for this podcast is proudly brought to you by Fractal Solutions, a division of Straight PTY Limited, who is responsible for both evolutionary and revolutionary innovation. Fractal focuses on exciting and disruptive technologies, including the blockchain and distributed ledger technology. The approach for the division is to devise and implement a strategy to focus on building a sustainable business that is equipped to identify and implement future trends and developments. The division adopts the principles of the lean startup and the agile methodology to introduce new products and services to market. The team is externally focused to collaborate with fintechs, local innovation, blockchain departments, and the international CSD community currently working on blockchain solutions. This event is proudly brought to you by the Blockchain Academy, which is based in Cape Town and offers training and consulting services on blockchain and cryptocurrencies in South Africa and various other countries. They teach attendees about the opportunities that exist and how to use the technology in order to innovate and better prepare for the future. If you'd like to get a 25% discount on any training offered by the Blockchain Academy, simply drop an email to info at blockchainacademy.co.za with the code MattBrownShow to get 25% off any of their training courses. That sounds pretty sweet to me. Hey guys, so it turns out Crypto Joburg was yet another sold out live show. And I'd just like to say thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has supported my crypto focused events throughout 2017. Because without your support, these events would simply not be possible. So Twitter was going crazy again on the night. In fact, hashtag Crypto Joburg or 
Crypto JHB was the number one trending hashtag on Twitter in South Africa on the night. This is another first for Mac Brown Media and the first podcast to trend in the number one hashtag position on Twitter in the history of South African media. I've also received a ton of feedback from attendees to throw these events more frequently and to go deeper into subjects like cryptocurrency trading, altcoins and ICOs, blockchain, Bitcoin for beginners and even mining for Bitcoin. Unfortunately, we've run out of runway for 2017 but the good news is that i'm already underway with the planning of three more events in cape town johannesburg and for the first time a crypto focused event in durban now the best way to get notified of new events is to follow me on twitter using the handle at matt brown za or to subscribe to the digital kung fu newsletter at digitalkungfu.co.za So finally, a quick thank you to our sponsors, the Park House of Events, Fractal Solutions and the Blockchain Academy. Again, without your guys' support, these events simply would not be possible. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. So here are your panelists and I'm going to introduce them um, one by one, starting with Lorian Gamaroff. Come on up, dude. Give them a round of applause. Thanks. Okay, Tanya Knowles from Fractal Solutions. Uh, Matt Owen from KCM Capital. Matt's building a crypto-backed hedge fund, just so you know. Uh, Fazam Isani. So Fazam wrote the definitive block, uh, white paper on blockchain and its implications for fintech and financial services around the world. Uh, Atish Ramkaran from the JSC. Welcome, dude. Okay, and last but not least, this guy, Ran Noyner from Crypto Trader. Thanks, brother. Okay, are we ready to go? Right, keep those tweets coming in, guys. Right. So let's start with the obvious point of departure here. You want to take a guess? Anyone? Anyone? Yes. Go. Why is the guy from the Johannesburg Stock Exchange here? <laughs> well. <laughs> nice guys, nice guys. Play nice. Okay, but let's talk about the Bitcoin price. I think that's pretty interesting. How many of you would find that interesting? Yeah, I would, de- yeah, I see all the hands going up. What is going on with the Bitcoin price, guys? We know it's volatile. We know it's unpredictable. We know there's shitloads of people, not just in this room, but also around the world, who are basically speculating without understanding the underlying econ- you know, the economic principles of, of Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and in search of other thousand cryptocurrencies. And it's literally gambling. And just interestingly, Ron put a tweet out. He was like, how much of your net worth... Do you remember that tweet? You put like, how much of your net worth um, is uh, invested in crypto? And like the highest segment has got more than half of their net worth in Bitcoin. It's the wild west out there. But let's talk about the price. Maybe Ran, you can kick us off. Let's go. Where's it going? The price is going up um, over time. Uh, I think the price has had a fantastic run for those of us who've been holding. For those of us who haven't bought yet, it's had a fantastic run which you've missed. Unfortunately, um, whether the price is justified, I, I don't think there's a calculation or, a, or a, um, an algorithm that can answer that because it's right now the use case of Bitcoin is as yet undefined. Some people are calling it a store of value. Other people are, are calling it a, a currency. 
Uh, I went to a talk in New York and a guy called Spencer Bogart, I think summarized it perfectly. He said, Bitcoin's a platypus. And what he meant by Bitcoin was a platypus, he said, it's not really a, a platypus is not really a mammal and it's not really a, a, a duck and it's not really a crocodile. Um, so what is it? And so this, in the same way, Bitcoin is not really a currency because people who trade currencies will tell you that Bitcoin is not a currency. It's got high transaction fees and it just doesn't fit the description of a currency. Is it a commodity? Well, it's not really a commodity because if you think about a commodity, most commodities carry on getting mined. If you think about gold today, gold has a supply curve which, is, which continues to be mined. Now, we know that Bitcoin's supply curve is capped at 21 million. So it's not a currency and it's not a commodity which means that effectively Bitcoin must be its own asset class. So we shouldn't talk about, we shouldn't compare Bitcoin to currencies and commodities because that's like comparing cars to bicycles and, and boats. It's not the same thing. It's a different thing. It's, we should stop talking about that. And what he says the value of Bitcoin, where, where the value of Bitcoin actually comes from is that it's the world's first financial programmable digital asset, which means that effectively what I can do with the Bitcoin is I can send you a Bitcoin that only releases to you when it's got my signature and Fozam's signature on it. Or I can program a Bitcoin to say that, I, that I'm going to send you a Bitcoin, but the Bitcoin is only going to release itself to you in the year 2021. Which means that for the first time in history, we have money that is programmable. So I can give you a note now, but it's not actually useful. And that's where Bitcoin derives its value from. And to put a value on that and to try and do it in current terms, in other words, present value discounted by an interest rate, would be using old valuation methodologies for new asset classes. So that's where the value is coming from. And can I just add something to that? So I think it's important to note that it's programmable without trusting any central institution or individual. So I think we've had programmable money, but you've needed to trust so this is the first time it's programmable where you don't need to trust anybody, no institution, um, no individual, and that's where the magic uh, lies. Might I add something then? You can. By the way, this is Mr. Contrarian, so please go ahead. <laughs> I want to just say that Lorian taught me, gave me my first Bitcoin lesson ever. We sat down at Tasha's and Lorian told me, you've got to buy Bitcoin, so when he speaks, we should listen. <laughs> so, you know, I think that, uh, that Spencer's quote about uh, Bitcoin being a platypus is, um, just shows you how kind of derailed we've, be- we've, we've come uh, in terms of what's going on in the space. You know, we, we know what Bitcoin is, or at least what it's meant to be. It's meant to be peer-to-peer cash. All right, and so because of the way that it's been developed, and because of the communities involved, and because of all the the disagreements, you know, there is no person who's actually the de facto leader of Bitcoin. What we find is that Bitcoin has stagnated and has become an issue. You know, uh, Bitcoin was it was very clear what Bitcoin was meant to be. It was meant to be a, a cash that you could now go and buy a cup of coffee with. But of course, we are now find ourselves at that place with Bitcoin Core, uh, where now uh, because of the the inability to be able to scale this. Thing, and depending on all these different uh, technologies that don't exist anymore. Uh, uh, also, uh, with their crazy sense that you need to have these uh, very small blocks so, every, so it can be much more decentralized, uh, what we find is that Bitcoin is now becoming this, this thing that nobody can really get a grasp on and is actually becoming a problem. But we know what Bitcoin was meant to be. It was meant to be cash. And that's why I am bullish on Bitcoin cash uh, because that is what this whole thing was about. That's why we're here today. That's where Bitcoin started and became what it was meant to be. 
Matt, if I can add to that, I think we keep trying to put Bitcoin into a box of saying, you know, it's a unit of account, it's a store of value, it's a medium of exchange. And we've, we've, we're trying to put it into this money definition that we've used now for over 2,600 years when, when coins first came about. But really, I think that it's a different thing that we've never seen before, just like the platypus, you can't put it into a, a definition, where we're now going to have a universal ledger. And that's a new element that's going to be added to the definition of money going forward. And, uh, and I think that that's what's making it a different a different thing this time stay with us we'll be right back hey there i know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience you sometimes get stuck don't you well if you're like me being stuck sucks but what if you could access the minds of over 850 ceos who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second well the good news is you can literally do that today what my team have built is matt brown ai it is trained on all the interviews over 850 of them that i've done to date all my books all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the matt brown show and you you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mapbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. I just, just want to add one thing. I mean, I think there's some great points here and I agree with most of what has been said, mostly. Uh, just one thing about, about the platypus. I'm not sure if many people know this, but the platypus is actually very poisonous. I'm not sure if that's actually a metaphor for potentially where Bitcoin is, is going. But um, I think toxic, isn't that a word? Uh, it, it is, but I mean, it's a weird looking thing. I mean, you wouldn't really go and pet a platypus. But leaving that aside, um, the, the point, uh, I think, uh, on Tanya's point, I mean, ultimately, um, yes, we have been using money for a very, very long time. I agree that Bitcoin, as it stands today, uh, based on the transaction volume, based on the, on the backlog, which is actually starting to grow, it's not pleasant, it has ultimately fallen slightly short, basically, of its original goal as peer-to-peer cash. And, but what's important is that Bitcoin was the first of its kind. To, uh, to Rand and, and Fazam's point, this, this is the first kind of programmable currency or programmable asset um, that doesn't require trust. And ultimately, as a, as a lighthouse, as a beacon of what we can do um, financially and globally when we actually have a network of trust, that's really, I think, one of the major uh, disruptive elements of Bitcoin. The fact that it's, that it's created a, an entire, like, you know, like hundreds, literally, it's about 1,200 or so now, other cryptocurrencies, and a lot of them basically have properties that are similar, properties that are vastly different, and sometimes properties that are actually even better than the original. It's to your point about the internet. Bitcoin, in many ways, basically is like Netscape. You know, it was the first browser. It was awesome, but we've moved on. Uh, Yako, can we uh, please, if possible, can we have the Twitter fall on this monitor on the floor here? Otherwise, Lorian's going to get a crypt neck. Um, just a couple of things to add on to that. So, I think everybody is infatuated with the price, and they just see this number, and it keeps going up. And um, when you think about valuations, it's not just the price that matters. It's actually the quantity that's out there. And we've talked a little bit about the 21 million cap. And if, you th if Bitcoin was actually priced in its smallest unit called a Satoshi, and a Satoshi, there are 100 million Satoshis that make up one Bitcoin. 
So if we, if we price it in one Satoshi, the price of one Satoshi today would be $0.00017. And we probably wouldn't be hearing this huge buzz, just because nominally, it's such a small number. And so there's a, I think in the news a couple of days ago, there was a, a painting that was sold for, for 450 million US dollars, right? We don't really talk about that being a bubble because we know there's only one of them. And there's utility in the fact that there's that one thing, it's so rare. And so I think many, many people fail to appreciate the rarity of something like Bitcoin and how, actually, how scarce it actually is. So it's not to say that it's going to go up indefinitely, and I think everybody should be careful. We should put all the, all the caveats at the beginning. But um, I think if you're just looking at the price and you're just saying it's expensive just because the number seems big, you've got some more thinking to do. I heard a theory today that uh, the Litecoin price has doubled in the last two days. And everyone, when I ask people, why has Litecoin doubled? I spoke to the founder this last night or this morning, and uh, I asked him, you know, are you releasing something? Are you coming out with a statement? What is it? I wanted to get him onto my show. He says, I have absolutely no idea why the price is running. So more research, I started asking around, why is the price running? And it turns out that people are buying Litecoin because they think they can't afford a Bitcoin. They're saying, look, a Bitcoin costs $20,000, Litecoin is $300, let me, let me buy a Litecoin. That thinking is absurd. Rather, if you believe in Bitcoin, put $300 and buy 0, 0.00 something Bitcoin, then get yourself a full Litecoin. I often get tweets saying, now that Bitcoin is too expensive per Bitcoin, which token do you recommend that's trading at under $2 or $5? I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. So I think, I think to Fazam's point about not having to buy a full Bitcoin, I think it's really one that must penetrate. So if you can't buy one and you want to get in the game, buy 0.1, buy 0.0001, just buy. Um, yeah, on Fazam's point about scarcity, um, and then also going back to the original roadmap for, for Bitcoin being a peer-to-peer -peer digital cash, um, the problem with that whole model is that with that scarcity, um, the price is always going to, with increased demand, the price is generally going to go up and people aren't going to spend something that's going to be worth more tomorrow. So they're not going to spend something today that's going to be worth more tomorrow and that's, a, I guess, a flaw in the original roadmap that was planned for Bitcoin because of the scarcity. Yes, but that's a flaw in your thinking. Yeah. Uh, if you want to buy something and you've got Bitcoin, you're gonna spend it. So just because you know that you can get your laptop next year for half the price, you need a laptop right now. You're not gonna wait a year's time to get that laptop. So that's a flawed way of thinking in terms of why Bitcoin fails as a money, because it's, some things are gonna be cheaper next year. Tech gets cheaper every year, but you don't wait. You can get your iPad now or your laptop, whatever it is that you wanna buy next year for half price, the same one. I wanna, gonna wait? I wanna add two points there. So I know Lorian has been living off Bitcoin, so he clearly <laughs> does spend his Bitcoin because otherwise he wouldn't be here. Um, that's the first thing. But I also spoke to Craig Wright. Now Craig Wright, is a, he was a big Bitcoin man. He at one point claimed that he was the, the original inventor of Bitcoin. He claimed that he was Satoshi Nakamoto. I think Lorian still believes he's Satoshi Nakamoto. But we had a very interesting discussion over the weekend and in the discussion, we started talking about Africa's problems, and specifically we were talking about Zim, but Africa is Africa and Zim is just one, one case in point. And he said, imagine if you could deposit your salary in Bitcoin, and you knew that your money, your salary that you deposited would be going up in value. 
you would become much smarter about what you spent your money on. Because you would say to yourself, bread, milk, the basics, oil, sugar, I'll buy. But will I go and splash out on those Gucci shoes that I don't need? You probably wouldn't because you know that this asset that you're holding really appreciates in value. So what Bitcoin can do, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash or whatever else it is, it can create a structure where people are more incentivized to save than to spend, which today is not the case. Um, which is a great use case for, for, for places like Africa where people aren't earning a lot and they need to buy the basics. And so Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash or some kind of cash equivalent may be a solution to Africa's problems. So Matt, I mean, you asked us, is it a bubble and what the price is going to be? And I think just to feed into this, you know, I think the point is that it's probably a bubble at the moment when your nanny, the petrol attendant, the Uber driver is all asking you about Bitcoin. And, you know, I tweeted to say that, that the old adage of, you know, when the shoe shine boy is, is giving you share, share tips, it's time to sell. I'm saying that doesn't hold true in the crypto world. If we really want mass adoption and we want this thing to take off around the world and benefit people in Africa, we actually need to be encouraging the conversations with the petrol attendant, with the nanny, etc. Because if we really want to change the financial system, that's, that's where the conversations need to go. So just to to jump in there, so let's talk about that, right? Because this is what Lorian's like stupidly passionate about. You can mention CentB if you want. But basically there's kind of like a three-step process with this whole story, right? One, you need to get Bitcoin. Big barrier, right? Because currently you're jumping through hoops. Anyone that actually owns Bitcoin is not exactly download one app and you can trade any number. It's not not easy, let's be honest, right? Uh, The second thing is you have to be able to store Bitcoin. Okay, exchanges aren't secure, right? You need a private key, you know what I mean? Stored on a hard drive somewhere in your, in your safe at home like you would store a firearm, probably in a bigger safe. Um, and then the third thing is you have to be able to spend it. And until those three things literally become easy, mass adoption is off the table. Then you've got other things to consider like regulation, right? Which is what we're saying in the kind of intro to this whole story. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? We need institutional money to come to the table. Otherwise, Bitcoin, you know, like it's going to remain a speculative thing. Um, and unless you're living in Japan, to my knowledge, Japan's the only country in the world where they've actually made cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin legal tender, meaning it has the same legal rights or uh, capabilities as many as what we understand it, right? So they already are at the forefront of this whole process. So I would, like maybe Fazam, you can help, you know, steer this conversation from here. But um, how, what, like, what is the institutional democracy, the financial order of South Africa, what do they need to do to basically introduce legislation that makes Bitcoin um, legal tender. Okay, so, so let's talk a little bit about, before it, the legislation, let's talk about the mindsets of the institutions themselves. Um, so I was about a month ago in Cape Town. On the Monday, I spoke to about 70 asset managers, and on the Tuesday, I spoke to about 300 students at UCT. And throughout the Monday, when I asked uh, everybody what they thought about Bitcoin and whether they were going to start buying it or whether they were going to put some of their funds into it. Um, Sorry, Fuzan, can you just hold the mic a bit closer? Is that better? Okay. Um, basically, about two people out of the 70 asset managers said that they would think about it. And most of them said that we're not putting any of our money, the, the money that we're managing into it. And I asked why, and they said, well, you know, for us to put any of our money into anything new like that, we need to get uh, the mandates of our funds changed, 
And the people sitting on our boards are 70-year-old people that have no interest in this stuff whatsoever. So I said, okay, sounds good. Uh, went uh, the next day to UCT. First question I asked the 300 students in the room was how many people had cryptocurrencies? And 150 people put up their hand out of the 300, 50% of the room. And many of them had many cryptocurrencies, not just one. The guy that had, had the most had 26 cryptocurrencies in the room. So we're, we're talking about a completely new paradigm right now. And the people that have done very, very well in the old paradigm have difficulty understanding this new paradigm because they've lived their entire life when nothing like this has ever existed. So institutional money, uh, and you've seen the clips, etc. I think is this idea is really stumping some of the most knowledgeable or seemingly knowledgeable people in our financial world, in our academic world, Nobel laureates, you name it. So I think given that, so when we talk about regulations as well, I think many regulation, regulators, as they should be, are conservative because they don't want to play around with a system that seems to be working. And I say seems to be working because it's got a lot of flaws in it right now. So I think it will still be some time before we have you know, really welcoming and accommodative regulations. I do think, though, that soon we'll see a lot of resistance. We haven't seen much resistance so far. We've maybe seen a couple of countries banning it, and it's maybe a small country here or there. But what we didn't talk too much about when we were talking about the price is that whenever you price anything, it's in terms of something else. So it's just by default we think in US dollar terms, or by default we're thinking in RAND terms. But you know, I was in an elevator with my, with my nephew the other day, and it was one of those old elevators where you see, you can see the, the fixed building going up when you're going down, if that makes sense. Uh, so the elevator was going down, but this, my nephew saw things going up because he saw everything down. He says, oh, we're going up. And I think that's actually a very interesting thing to think about things right now because the question is, is Bitcoin going up or are fiat currencies going down? And if you look at all asset classes right now, the stock markets, if you look at property, all around the world with the risk that we have in our current system, and all of these things are hitting record highs, you should be asking yourself why. doesn't really make so much sense. So I'll pause there. So I'd just like to jump in there for some. Two points. Um, the first one, it is the nature of disruption, of technological disruption, that ultimately the, the, the people being disrupted, it's difficult for them to see it because ultimately they are still looking at the new technology using the rules and the valuation techniques and the, the methodologies of the old technology. But disruption isn't an incremental improvement over um, you know, what came last. I mean, there was a great quote I, I read recently. The, the light bulb wasn't invented via incremental improvements to the candle. You know, you can't, you, you can't use the, the old methods of understanding something for something that is absolutely, completely, fundamentally changing um, an entire industry. I mean, that's just the, the point about disruption. The, the, the other point I want to make is uh, this notion of, of regulation. And listen, I mean, I, I do work for the, for the stock exchange, right? Yes, I, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, now there's five. When the stock exchange shuts down, phone me, we'll find you some cool. Thanks, thanks, dude. I'll, I'll take you up on that. <laughs> but ultimately, the, the, the point I'm making is that ultimately the JSC specifically has been uh, one of the world's best regulated financial exchanges almost, I think it was like six years running. I think we're in number two spot now. But for all that regulation, and I agree with the concept of regulation, but I disagree with the, the way regulation is executed. Because if you look at, and, and certainly compliance, 
Because if you're if we're talking about the institutional investors and the, the you know the seventy year old asset managers with their clients being very worried about investing in this thing because either I don't understand it or look it's not backed by a government or regulation. Where were you when 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 Steinoff happened? Uh, it was I mean one of the largest cap stocks, absolute like platinum stock, like the top of the top forty. And here we are, ninety percent later in a week. For all the regulation, ultimately the institutions basically that we rely on to give us all this trust failed us. The the board of Steinhoff, the auditors of Steinhoff, the asset managers who invested like pension funds and, and all of this into Steinhoff and lost all that money. And ultimately, I mean, even to, to some degree, basically the, the exchange itself um, for ultimately keeping this asset going. I mean, all of these are highly regulated, highly trusted name brand institutions, and yet here we are. And I'm not saying that, oh, well, look at them. So why are they allowed to do that? And we should, therefore, we should be allowed to do this in Bitcoin. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that trust in many, in many cases is, is a bit of an illusion, and we need to be realistic about this. I think that the regulators have been quite responsible with Bitcoin by not regulating it yet. No, I really do. I think that they've actually adopted a very cool approach of, and it's not only in South Africa, it's in many countries around the world where the regulators have said, let this thing go. Let's see where this thing goes to. And I've spoken to the guys from the ECB, et cetera, et cetera. And they've said, our view is a wait and see approach. We're going to wait and see where this thing goes before we put regulation on it. That for me is quite a responsible view because I think if we do get regulated as a currency, then we get boxed into currency rules. Now, the problem with regulating Bitcoin as a currency is that the law of this country says that the RAND is the only legal tender in this country. So they can't make it a currency because the RAND is the only legal tender in this country. Is it a commodity? We don't know. And that's what the regulators are doing. The regulators are saying, let's wait and see. Let's get a real understanding of this asset class before we legislate it. And I think for us, that's a very good thing because we know where, the, where it's going. I would be very, very, very upset and very disappointed if they regulated Bitcoin as a currency next year because then that means that we are bound to the rules that apply to currencies and that doesn't apply to this asset class. Can I quickly anyone respond to that? Anyone, just, anyone. A, just a little bit of a different perspective. So. When we talk about regulation of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, a lot of people have different understandings of what that means. So there's no way you can regulate Bitcoin from the perspective of its supply, uh, issuance algorithm, how many Bitcoins there are going to be, let's change it. You can't regulate that. But uh, as a central bank that is responsible for the financial stability and monetary stability of our uh, country, um, what they will probably do, uh, is my understanding, is that they'll probably say, listen, we need to actually understand who is buying and selling our currency. Whether that's for dollars or gold or bitcoins, it doesn't really make a difference because they want to understand what the supply and demand is of the rand. So I envisage a lot of countries around the world regulating cryptocurrencies from the perspective of the gateways into their own national currency. So the rands that go from someone's account into an exchange to buy Bitcoin, I think every single central bank very, very soon will be saying those exchanges, not any Tom, Dick and Harry can actually run them. There are going to be a few of them that we want to regulate so we can actually understand who is buying and selling this stuff. 
Once you've bought it, then you can do whatever you want with it, and you can't really regulate it. But I think there will be a lot of regulation from the gateways into and out of fiat currency. Yes, there's going to be uh, you know a whole host of services that come up around this now. If Bitcoin ever does become functional and useful, then there's going to be merchants, there's going to be uh, traders, there's going to be all sorts of people, and those are the the service providers that can become regulated. So yes, of course, you know you don't need to worry about you can't worry about if somebody's got Bitcoin, but you can certainly worry about a merchant that is. Accepting Bitcoin, and there you have a finger you can put on the on the pulse. So those are the, the the entities that will become regulated in the future. The the people who add value around Bitcoin, uh, especially the on and off ramps. But that's we want that kind of regulation yes, of because course. it yeah. adds credibility to yes. the industry. The fact that exchanges ask you for your passport and you know your customer, the KYC documents, that adds credibility. We want that. We should we should we should push for that because it gives us. Relevance and credibility as an asset class, but it gives consumers protection, which is what we want. Should we take a question off uh, Twitter? Here? Um, let's go with. Pardon me. Let's go with uh, the top one. I'll agree. I'll say yes. You want to go with that one? That's my answer to that. You know, uh, I'll speak on that. Just because, repeat the question for us. Okay, so the, the question is, will it be possible for any Bitcoin hard fork to topple, surpass legacy Bitcoin because of better technology? Now, for many, many years, and I've been around Bitcoin for a long time, you know, if somebody said, well, what happens if another coin comes along that's better than Bitcoin? And my answer was always, that's never going to happen because the community is going to have such a vested interest in making sure that Bitcoin is the best, that uh, they'll do everything in their power to make sure that it stays the best. And if there is a new technology that comes out from some other coin, then it's going to be very easy for them to incorporate that. And I, that's what I, I used to believe. And uh, I've since come to the realization that that's not the case, that it is quite possible for there to be a, a problem that occurs within the currency, and we see that with Bitcoin today, and for an alternative coin to come up. I mean, we really see how many coins are out there today. You know, if you think about Litecoin now being 400, what did you say, 300? You, you never know. I mean, people, people now, are, especially new people, people getting into the space, sure, they may, might have heard about Bitcoin, but they're coming into this whole smorgasbord of, of different versions and styles of coin. I mean, uh, you know, you can take your pick. So uh, what we're now seeing is that these alternative currencies are now taking market share away from Bitcoin precisely because Bitcoin couldn't maintain, it couldn't become, it remain relevant. You know, it's become useless. You know, it has all these issues with it. So uh, this is definitely something that is possible. And uh, again, I never thought it would happen, but just the, the evidence is right there before you. So I think that uh, you will see alternative coins. If Bitcoin stays the way it is, it will fail. And uh, just to go to the bubble aspect of this, um, I think Bitcoin is in a bubble, but not for the reasons that 99% of all these you know, talking heads say. Um, because it's, you know, it's, it's, I think Bitcoin is in a bubble because it's overvalued in terms of its technology, but the cryptocurrency space is not in a bubble. Of course not. I mean, we've got this scarce commodity, and if it becomes useful and demand increases, it's going to become extremely valuable. Um, but Bitcoin itself, I now have a, a sense that what's going to happen is that these alternative currencies, and specifically Bitcoin Cash, because I know of many different initiatives right now that are making Bitcoin Cash usable, including my company, where you can go buy your groceries, you can go and uh, send money to your friends, you can do whatever you like using Bitcoin Cash. In the olden days, I used to go to conferences and I used to give people Bitcoin because it was just easy and quick to do it. Nowadays, I give everybody Bitcoin Cash because, you know, it's just, I can send them 10, 50 rand or 100 rands worth of Bitcoin Cash. So I do think that, in fact, is what's happening right in front of our eyes. And I think that Bitcoin is in a bubble because of that. And I think you're going to see value move over as more and more people uh, realize that.
This podcast was recorded, composed for, and mixed by Audio Militia, leaders in composition, vinyl mix, and sound design. For more info, visit audiomilitia.com. Can we talk about initial coin offerings for a second? Sorry, we have to. <laughs> um, just on ICO, so I spoke to Luke Klaassen uh, the other day. So Luke Klaassen, Vinnie Lingham, what's the, the fund they have? Newtown. Yeah, Newtown. So they backed uh, GetWalla, or the dollar token. Um, and so they're kind of at the forefront with Vinnie being in Silicon Valley and also obviously Cape Town being the kind of like tech capital of Africa, I guess. Debatable. But, um, but I was speaking to Lou and he was basically telling me that they've developed some pretty interesting IP from an initial coin offering perspective. He wouldn't tell me exactly what that was. But more importantly, what he said to me was that the ICO space, he wasn't bullish on anymore because one, deregulated, too many guys running off to South America with uh, Ferraris and Lamborghinis. Um, and so the whole ICO space, because I think the, the general gist here is you guys want to invest and try and work out where to put your money, right? So obviously Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies is one option and initial coin offerings or tokens essentially represents another option for you. So my question to you guys is, is it a waste of time for us from an ICO perspective? Because I'm yet to see a use case in reality. Like even with Walla, it's like, okay, we want to include the financially excluded or unbank the banked. Do you know what I mean? Like, so is, are we bullish on it? Like, is it something we should uh, be considering seriously as investors? Um, let me let me get this one. I mean, ultimately, I do work for a stock exchange where people raise capital. So, um, ICO is basically a, a way of raising capital without um, being on a central exchange or actually meeting its listing requirements or meeting any of its regulation. Although, what's happening interestingly in the U.S. Uh, for as you've tweeted about this, the SEC uh, has a new cyber unit that ultimately is starting to um, investigate and effectively even shut down certain ICOs that look very scammy. To your question, Matt, about um, bullish on ICOs, at the moment, no. I would say that um, we, we should wait a while before actually becoming bullish on ICOs because it's just so easy for somebody to, like you mentioned before, get somebody to write a white paper, make it sound great, throw in the word cryptocurrency and blockchain, and then suddenly everybody wants to throw their money behind it because this is going to be the next Bitcoin. Right? And that's a problem. That's a real problem. People talking about a bubble, the bubble is in ICOs. That's really where it is. One of the things that worries me about it is that, um, you know, I, I quoted on this earlier that you know it represents the you know the best and the worst. It, it appeals to the best and the worst parts of, of human ingenuity. Um, it allows anybody to raise capital for a good idea, and I have an example of a, of a very good one. But ultimately, uh, on the other hand, you, you're right. You can actually head off to South America with a with a Ferrari or whatever. But um, I think the the regulation in that space needs to needs to be a little tighter. Uh, regarding an ICO basically that I came across recently, very, very interesting one. Um, it's a company called uh, Pembient. Uh, and what they do, awesomely, I mean, I have a background in, in life sciences from a, another life. But uh, Pembient uh, create biofabricated rhino horn. So ultimately, they grow uh, rhino horn that's indistinguishable uh, biologically under a microscope, basically, from actual rhino horn. But for them to raise capital, they actually used an ICO method to do it. And they didn't raise ridiculous amounts, like 232 million like Tezos. They raised something like 37,000 US. You know, it's not an insane amount of money. And what they're doing is each one of those coins is ultimately redeemable for one gram of biofabricated rhino horn. And ultimately what they're trying to do is, is disrupt um, rhino poaching. If you can flood the market with cheap synthetic 
horn that can be used for either art purposes because they can actually grow them into like cylinders that you can carve for artwork all the way down to crushing it for use in whatever kind of situation you may have. I don't want to speculate. Um, but ultimately, I mean, there's a great example basically of somebody that had a good idea uh, but obviously was having trouble finding um, funding for this idea. Turn to an ICO, raise a responsible amount of money. I mean, listen, whether they deliver the product or not, it's slated for 2020. I'd like to believe they will because it's a, it's a noble cause and the amount of money raised was quite responsible. That's a good example in, in, in my view. I think, I think um, the cause there is very good, but I think that them issuing a token that buys you a piece of rhino horn defeats the purpose of the token economy. That to me sounds very much like a security token. It's something that is backed or, or derives its value from the performance of something else. That's not why we need tokens. So I think going to, to Matt's point, there's a definite market for ICOs. For good or for bad, I think the market has become pretty bearish at the moment. And I think the, the bearishness has been caused by too many people raising too much money too quickly for not well thought out token uses. Um, I think that the market must consolidate and if you understand what tokens are actually made for and specifically use case tokens. Tokens that are, 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 are created for a certain use case or tokens that are created to use on a blockchain and you've done your due diligence properly and due diligence doesn't mean reading the white paper and going onto Twitter. But if you've done that, there's probably a lot of money to be made in, in the better ICOs. But playing darts and buying into an ICO where you don't understand it and you don't know if the token's gonna to be legislated over time is probably the quickest way to lose money. Um, yeah, so I, I tend to agree with that. I think um, the ICO space was in somewhat of a bubble and um, has popped now because the, the vast majority of ICOs that come out these days, um, they don't hit their market cap that they are hoping to, to or they don't hit the cap of the, of the amount of funds that they were hoping to raise. So people are becoming a lot more wary about, uh, about ICOs and doing a lot more due diligence um, into them. And uh, as a result, there are a few ICOs uh, that, that do hit their cap and are, are positive and, uh, and people feel quite bullish about them. Um, but those are few and far between. Earlier this year, I would probably say 90% of ICOs were hitting their cap and now that's probably down to around, I don't know, 10 to 20% if that. Just uh, one, one thing on that. Uh, I mean, to you, Matt, I'm going to do you a favor just now, Matt. But ultimately, um, Ren, I mean, from your perspective, I mean, you're a, you're a trader, right? I mean, you, I'm not a trader. You're, I trade 5% of my portfolio. Crypto trader guy. Yeah, ultimately, I mean, you do see the token basically is ultimately something that can be sold for, for something else. In this case, specifically, I mean, just, just to finish on the Pembian thing, tokens can have two uses. You can actually use it then on sell it to somebody else who actually wants the, the good that you can redeem for that token. The other use would be, I actually want some rhino horn. So, because I, not that I have a problem, I, I like but to carve rhino horn. But hold on, then you, you, basically what you're doing is you're tempting the snake by hitting it with a stick. Because what you're doing is you're saying, it's a security, but I'm not gonna call it a security, so don't regulate me like a security, but it's got all the, 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 the qualities of a security, but I'm calling it a token. What you, the, the, the scenario that you described is exactly what the US is warning people about, mm -hmm. saying there are securities sure. which are dressed up as tokens. And that is what the, the cyber unit is, is, is trying to patrol. They're trying to patrol scams sure. and securities which are dressed up as tokens. You cannot take a new case, a new world with a new type of financial asset 
and then apply that to old assets because then you may as well use a security which gives you a share of the of the company that sells the rhino horn or, or, or whatever or whatever you want to do. Can we can we take a step back though? So when we're talking about ICOs, I just want to make sure everybody's on the same page. This is a really phenomenal concept because traditionally when you think about buying something, you're buying something to either use like a service or a good. But when we get into the investment space, generally when you're putting money into something, you're either getting equity for it or you're getting debt, right? So let's think about the fact that over the last few months, there have been a few uh, initiatives, let's call them, where they've issued a, a token where, for instance, Filecoin has raised over 250 million US dollars for no issuance of equity and no issuance of debt. Bancor, $150 million. Tezos, $230 million. This is a couple, right, that raised $230 million for nothing. Right? They don't owe you anything. They don't owe you the money back. They don't promise to give you anything. They promise a platform, but whether they do or they don't deliver it, you have no recourse to that money. So that's a completely new paradigm shift in the way we think about investing in money. So my personal view is that there was a question about the token, like a token economy and where we're moving. One of the beautiful things about Bitcoin and uh, other cryptocurrencies is the fact that they, do, they, pay, they pay no heed to national borders and they cross borders as if they don't exist. And actually borders don't really exist except for in our human imagination, right? None of us know who created the border between us and, and Zim. Okay, maybe some historians do. But uh, the point is, these are legacies of our past. And I think cryptocurrencies are making us actually recognize the unity of the human race and pushing us beyond these silly divisions that we've had. So how many tokens that serve as money do you actually need? And, and I think... You know, Lorian's probably on the same page over here, although we may have a little bit of difference on which tokens it will be. But these ICOs now are giving you a token to be used on their platform for the future. So my question is, well, do you really need to buy a pick and pay coin every time you go to pick and pay to buy, to buy your red? Do you need to buy a Woolworths coin to go to Woolworths? No, that actually defeats the whole purpose, to have so many tokens. So I think one thing I have learned in this world is that you need to be humble. So I have no idea how things are going to pan out. But from looking at it, I think there is a lot of froth in the market right now from this ICO perspective where there's no mining, it's an individual or a couple of people giving people tokens, which is nothing, and taking a whole bunch of cash and doing whatever they want with it. Let me tell you where you stand in this ICO thing. If you give money to someone who raises money in an ICO and he publishes a white paper and you read the white paper and you make a decision to put money in the ICO and that person takes the money, gets onto a yacht and goes and, and boozes up the entire ICO $30 million and the police walk onto the yacht and the police walk onto the yacht. It's booze and, and a whole lot of other stuff. <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street. And Rhino Horn. Yeah, just think Wolf of Wall Street. Lots and lots of Rhino Horn. So, lots of Rhino Horn, exactly. <laughs> so, the guy goes and blows the money and the police walk onto the yacht and say, you're under arrest for taking this money and pulling a scam. It's not a scam because he has no legal obligation to build what he promised he was going to build. So, you don't even... You raise money, you don't have any legal contract with the person that the token is ever going to be used. 
which means for you guys and for us, it means you have to do much more due diligence on the team, the roadmap, and the use case of the token because you don't, they don't have any legal obligation to you like equity or debt. Just a quick one there. I, I absolutely agree with you, and that's the reason why I said we need more regulation in this space, sorry. But ultimately, um, the, the problem is trust. Again, we've gone back to trust. We created something that decentralizes um, the participants and allows people to perform uh, transactions without trust, and we, we get into a situation where we have to trust the guy to actually deliver the, the, the good that, that token represents at the end of the day. There's actually um, a, a very interesting uh, technology that's being developed at the moment, basically, based off of blockchain as well, called Kleros. Um, it was developed by a guy named Federico Ast and Julian, something French, I can't pronounce it. But ultimately, it's a, um, it's a dispute resolution protocol. Are you pumping and your ICOs here? Say what? No, I, I, not, not yet. <laughs> Are you invested in uh, these, by the way? Uh, it hasn't opened yet, so, oh, okay. but uh, fingers crossed. But ultimately, the way it, the way it works is uh, just, it's a, it's a mechanism basically specifically for this. So ultimately, crowdsourcing or crowdfunding has the same problem. Uh, unless you're Kickstarter that actually holds the funds in escrow and then releases when the producer or the, you know, the, the manufacturer actually creates that new skateboard or hoverboard. Um, you know, the, uh, Kickstarter basically can refund people, but again, Kickstarter is, is, a, is a, a, central, a central authority, a trusted third party. Now, ultimately, what, what Claros is doing is actually building a dispute resolution protocol where money, or ultimately, um, you know, ether, or, or, uh, is actually added into a smart contract. And when certain, uh, when certain checkpoints are actually reached, like the uh, producer of Falcon actually does produce an alpha version of the service that you can use for storage, and this many percent of token holders actually agree that, yes, he actually did live up to the milestone that we agreed up front as a contract, that's when more funds are released, like Series A, Series B funding. So there's actually protocols Let's that work on, on stuff yeah. like this. Um, sorry. Cool. Uh, Matt, I just wanted to add that, that I would say overall I'm actually quite bullish on ICOs. Um, I, I just love the concept. Um, and to me, this has to be an industry that has matured so quickly from, uh, from uh, you know, being a, a pump and dump thing that was a given where you could raise 250 million in the blink of an eye in July to people being far more skeptical now about what they're actually putting their money in. And uh, I was listening to a talk by uh, an ICO called Coin, um, spelled with a Q, and they launched a decentralized exchange in Japan and they honestly feel that the scrutiny and the due diligence and everything that they went to from, from investors wanting to know who the auditors were, you know, the KYC stuff, everything was, was something that they felt if they'd gone the traditional IPO route it actually would have been easier. So to me, there is still schemes out there. There are still stupid people buying these things. But I love what it represents in terms of launching an idea, launching a company that um, has some value. I agree it needs to have some value around the token. It needs to be, to be linked to the blockchain. But allowing entrepreneurs to have access to funding away from the VC model that has honestly just strangled, strangled entrepreneurs for so many years. Yeah, totally. So let's talk, there's quite a few questions here about tax. Yeah, I want let's, to... Let's talk about tax. <laughs> oh my God. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll launch into the tax. <laughs> Fuck. So okay. uh, the, the question's going around is how does SARS handle, handle tax in Bitcoin? And, and this is a very, very interesting question. And um, 
you know, we were having a discussion actually with Vinnie Lingham around it, and he, he had some really good ideas. That was with the South African Blockchain Consortium, and um, and SARS are definitely interested in in this. You know, any tax revenues is good, um, and and one of the ideas put forward was to say that perhaps you get taxed at the point of of purchase. So very much like that, where you know we we. we Put out a number to SARS of 10%. By the way, when they asked, um, so but but I think it's it's the only way that governments are actually going to be able to control this thing is is to tax it at the point of purchase. Well, you know, once you bought the bitcoins, you you get lost in the system, and there's no way after that. So yeah, and I think SARS are looking at it, and they're looking for a clean, simple solution, and I believe that that could be it. I think short term, I think short term, the taxing of Bitcoin is the answer. But I want to I want to share a paradigm shift with you guys. When where governments derive their power from, governments derive their power from the fact that they own the treasury and that they control the money. That's really how you derive your power and you can use your, your money to buy weapons and, and stuff like that. But think about a world where governments don't control the treasury anymore. Where do governments derive their power from? And for me, that's really the question that we have to ask. Will Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies decentralize governments and come to a position where we don't care about the government because the government doesn't have the cash anymore. That's, it's a, it's a short-term, they have to work out how to tax it. I think longer-term, the paradigm shift is a much, it's a much bigger problem. It's that the government's not going to hold the treasury anymore. And that's really something to think about what happens to a world that works like that. You know, this, this feeds in a bit into what we were talking about earlier, but I've always said I feel sorry for the regulators. And um, I wouldn't want to be a central banker now trying to put a strategy together for the next 10 years uh, because really the, the, the levers that they have to control the economy and the money supply and things around that are, are actually running out between you know, quantitative easing, uh, you know, inflation targeting, all the policies that central banks have had over the years, I don't think that they're sustainable. And uh, I think they, they're doing a lot of soul searching and asking some questions as to, as to how they're going to manage things in future, because I think that their livelihoods are actually under threat. Sorry, Fazan, before you jump in, Yaku, can we get a, a roaming mic uh, just set up so we can start taking questions from the audience? Thanks. So, yeah, so tax, I think um, there isn't a clear set out framework yet for how these things are going to be taxed. But I think it's quite clear that a lot of the things that you, when you buy and the price goes up and you sell it, it's either going to be income tax or CGT, uh, capital gains tax. And uh, I think uh, the regulators and SARS, etc., would, would, would be well within their rights to say, hey guys, you've made some profit, um, have you paid your taxes? So I think it's important for everybody to recognize that and to know that people could be on the hook, so, so be careful. Now, having said that, I think if you take a step back and look at the bigger picture, uh, countries around the world are facing fantastic fiscal crises. And things like this are going to make that even more difficult. Because how do you prove that you do or you don't have a cryptocurrency? Very, 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 very difficult, especially some of the privacy-oriented cryptocurrencies like Dash and Monero, etc. And I think what we will see is that a lot of our sovereign states may start seeing a lot of their revenue bases dry up. And I don't think that means, or is not, that's not a cause for celebration. I think there are a lot of people in the crypto world who talk about an anarchistic view of the world and how we don't need government and how we, you know, we need liberty and freedom, etc. And I think it's important to recognize that as human beings, uh, governance actually assists us. I always like to give the example of a traffic light. We all complain like crazy when the traffic lights are out. We don't say, yes, freedom, no more traffic lights. 
right? We like the fact that there are traffic lights that tell some of us to go and others to stop, and it facilitates the flow of traffic quicker than if we all had to get around ourselves. So I think what this world is going to start doing is going to actually start questioning our entire system. Our entire voting system is going to be changed by this technology. Our entire system of governance uh, is going to be changed. So I think in the foreseeable future, it's not going to be all rosy, and I also think there's probably going to be some big declines in prices, and as we talked about, changes of government stances on this. But I think it will start pushing us into a new paradigm because the current status quo right now doesn't serve much of humanity. And we're going to be pushed to a point where we're going to have to force, we'll be forced to face a lot of the issues that we have as humanity. Imagine a, a world where your tax payments are pre-programmed in smart contracts. It means that the government, you wouldn't need a government, but the government couldn't overspend or be corrupt with your taxes. If you could, if, imagine that you paid your tax and you could buy a smart contract, say 15% of this is going to water, X is going to policing, and that was released by a programmable digital financial asset that, that, that needs trust. That is probably where we're going to go to. We're going to go to smart contracts that manage our tax, if you want to call it that, it's the only word we know, but our payments to keep infrastructure going. That's where I see the world probably long after we are gone, but that's kind of where I see the world. Can I uh, just mention something there? So I, I agree with, with Frazam to the point where um, I do believe that we need government, but we need better government. Um, and to the point of, uh, you know, like tax collection and, uh, you know, paying for infrastructure, absolutely. The efficiencies added by using technology like blockchain um, and, and technologies that come from that, like smart contracts, to actually auto-execute things like tax and payments and escrow, these are amazing innovations because they reduce a lot of friction and cost of, of payments in general. Um, there was a very interesting article I came across recently by an author named George uh, Mombio uh, from The Guardian, I think. But he was writing about, um, ultimately, this notion of the way we see the world, and again, I mean, you know, the fact that we can actually attend a cryptocurrency conference and talk about Bitcoin means that ultimately, you know, we're in the, the upper percentiles um, from an from a asset wealth perspective. But what he was talking about is that ultimately what, what, we, what the world seems to be chasing ultimately is this concept of, of private luxury. We all want a tennis court and a swimming pool and a, and a helicopter. And I'm not saying that that is necessarily a bad thing, but it can't be sustained basically for 7 billion people. And he was proposing, I mean, not him, but he was quoting an, another economist, I can't remember who it was, and he was talking of this notion of um, private efficiency and public luxury. So ultimately, better public services, better public parks, better pools, better facilities that everybody can actually enjoy, rather than everybody trying to have a pool and a rugby field in their own home. It's just physically unsustainable in certain places. But if, if that's the way the world will go, and I'd like to believe that we can, we can get there, the sharing economy is, is telling us that we are willing to effectively share uh, and the growth in, in services like Airbnb and, and even like services like Uber. I don't agree with their management structure, but let's leave that. But ultimately the point is the fact that these sorts of paradigms are changing the way we actually view possessions or services means that, glimmer of hope, we may actually be moving to a world like that. What that means though is that we would absolutely need more people to administer all these public luxuries. And that, maybe that would be what governments become, administrators and effectively custodians. We place a lot of trust in government for a lot of things today, and ultimately, locally, they have let us down. Nothing that you can't use a smart contract for. Sure. Maybe government would be a collection of smart contracts auto-executing amongst each other. 
Cool. Um, Lecture conferences would be fun. <laughs> thanks, guys. So we're going to take questions from the audience. There's no roaming mic. Boo. So what I'm going to suggest is, if you want, please, have you got a question? Do you want to come up and just speak into the mic? I need to get the audio. Or there you go. Just your name as well. Hi, my name is Craig Hills. Uh, what I'm wanting to do is everyone wants to see blockchain being used en masse. But now Bitcoin, as we see, it's supposedly going into a bubble, might burst in the next couple of weeks. Who knows? If it goes to Bitcoin Cash, like you say, and we can transfer and it's really quick and the transactions are processed very quickly, as you went to your point, why would I transfer with you now if the value is going to increase in the next two weeks? Yes, yeah, so what we're in right now is a, a, a hyper-deflationary stage where you know we have this new asset, people are getting interested in it and they're wanting to get it, so the price is going to the moon. And of course, that's going to happen probably for the next few months, next few years, as more people get into this. But eventually, it's going to level out. You know, Maybe one day it'll have the market cap of gold or something, and then you know it'll be saturated and, and it'll stabilize. But yes, of course, right now we're in this very cool phase, if you want to be an investor, to get in early, and you will definitely uh, you know benefit from that. But it's not going to be like this for Forever. It's not going to go to infinity. You know, eventually it's going to capture, let's say, M1 money supply or something, $100 trillion, let's say, best case scenario, and then it'll stabilize. So, you know, it's just the phase we're in right now. I've got, I've got two points that I'd like to add there. I think the first thing is, I'm not sure that there's a direct correlation between the use case of blockchain technology, as you mentioned, and the value of the tokens at the moment. I think there's a very big detachment of it. The most common network that we have, the most used network that we have is the Ethereum network, and even that got crippled by a stupid program that allowed you to breed kitties, virtual kitties on the network. So blockchain is nowhere near where it, what the token valuations are today. The flip side of it is if I were to say to you, what do you believe the future value of all the companies that have issued tokens are today? What do you believe the future value of all the use cases of the tokens are today? The number today is $500 billion. Let's remove Bitcoin from that valuation because Bitcoin only has one use case and it's a store of value use case. So let's remove it because it doesn't have a utility. That leaves you with a market capitalization of 250 or $300 million. I haven't checked it very recently, the last couple of minutes. Now you've got to ask yourself the question. If you take all the use cases of all the tokens till the end of time, do you believe that $300 billion is a fair valuation? Based on that, you should decide whether or not the market is too heated for you or not too heated for you. And compare the 500 billion to the lump of metal we call gold that's valued at 7.5 trillion US dollars today. So I think we're talking about an asset class that's not even a drop in the ocean of the world's financial system. Do you want gold or a Bitcoin? I've got 20,000 Rand worth of gold here and I've got 20, uh, one Bitcoin. What do you want? Bitcoin. Therefore, we can conclude that Bitcoin should have a higher market cap than gold. Bye. Okay. Based on that research, I'm issuing a buy recommendation. I think the panelists might Ryan's be Ryan's comments advice. do not constitute financial advice. He is a... <laughs> Good evening. My name is Oksana. I have two questions for the panelists. The first is, what is your opinion on universal basic income? And the other is your opinion on um, digital identity, which is not linked to nationality. Um, UBI, Universal Basic Income. Um, it's a very interesting concept. I mean, some people talk about it as um, all the way from like socialist paradise to, um, you know, a welfare state. I mean, that, that, these are some of the things that, that people talk about. 
I think that, that UBI taken to an extreme uh, situation where ultimately the government issues money to, to people, their citizens, and they use that to effectively buy services that governments normally provide, like healthcare, uh, like security, ultimately, from private institutions, free market. I mean, this is, there's various flavors of UBI on the spectrum. I mean, the mo in the most extreme case, that would be it. Ultimately, I mean, we need to think about how, how free markets behave. And I, I mean, there are far more esteemed people that can talk about market behavior here. But ultimately, in that situation, I mean, it could lead to free market predation on what is effectively free money. Depends on just how far you go with UBI. I think that somewhere on the spectrum, there's probably a point at which it can be beneficial from a societal perspective. It's interventionist and it distorts uh, free markets. So, I mean, it, it's going to lead to hyperinflation and I think it disincentivizes people. So I don't agree with it. So two things. Your second question about uh, identity. I think we will start seeing identity moving away from nation states in the future, because I think the world will start moving away from nation states. Nation states is a thing of the past, we're still living with it, but we'll start seeing in the future how a lot of our nation states, our current borders, are gonna start changing. We, start to, we think about our map as immutable, whereas if we look at the map from 50 years ago, 100 years ago, it looks nothing like it does today. So why should it in 50 years or 100 years look like it does today? So things are going to be changing, and I think identity is going to move towards a more human thing rather than a national thing. Then the second thing, uh, maybe underlying your question about UBI, is what cryptocurrency can do for social like uh, progress in the world, financial inclusion, etc. Many people talk about cryptocurrencies and being a great thing for, for financial inclusion. I have completely the opposite opinion. I think if you look at the amount of concentration of wealth in this world of cryptocurrencies, it's in the hands of a few. And for those of you that are familiar with Gini coefficients that measures inequality in a nation, if you look at the Gini coefficient of Bitcoin, by some estimates, it's difficult to, dis to, to figure out what exactly what it is, but by some estimates, it's 0.88. And the higher it is, the worse it is. And that's worse inequality than any nation state in the world. So I view cryptocurrencies and this, and this and blockchain technology, et cetera, as a tool. It is not going to solve our world's problems for sure, and it's going to exacerbate them, some of them in, in, a, in a big way. So it's depending on how we use them will determine actually what their value to humanity will be. Okay, this, this gentleman here, please. Hi, thanks. Uh, my name is Mark Forrest. I wanted to find out from you guys, um, what's your thoughts around education on, on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? So cryptocurrencies are blowing, as we all know, Bitcoin's blowing. You go to Abra, the first thing people are talking about at the moment is Bitcoin and how can I buy Bitcoin and what app must I get? But actually, um, there's going to be tears at the end of the day. There's going to be tears, whatever. If they're going to go buy some ICO, they're going to buy um, Bitcoin. How do we educate people, the men on the street, the people that can't, don't know that about uh, this, this, this conference, whatever it might be? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm doing it because I think that it's the right thing to do. Uh, the first thing I've done is I've got a show on CNBC. If you go to episode one, we literally started off by what is blockchain. I think Lauren was my first guest on the show and my second guest was Fazam. And we literally, we worked our way up from not knowing anything to today we're discussing token economics. Next year, we're doing a 10 series show which literally starts off what is Bitcoin and the next show will be how do I buy Bitcoin and the next thing is where do I store Bitcoin and we're going to do 10 of them and we're going to televise that. So I think the, the first thing is that buyers or people who invest in, in tokens and Bitcoin and have absolutely no idea what it does, that's irresponsible and to be honest, those people should lose money because that's irresponsible. But if you are going to get involved, 
then you should do enough research to justify why you're getting involved. And enough research is not standing around a bri and then on Monday morning buying Bitcoin because it's the quickest you could deposit your money into Luno. You've really got to take a view. You've got to take a view as to what to buy. I'm very concerned. I sit on a whole lot of chat groups. I make a point of sitting on as many chat groups as I can because it gives me a gauge of what's happening in the market. And there's one which are actually some good friends of mine and they're on the group. But if you only heard the reasons why they're buying stuff, you would cringe. <laughs> they have no idea what the token does. No idea what sector it's in. Sometimes, the one time I told them to buy a token, they spelt it wrong, they still bought a token, they made money and they thanked me. <laughs> I told them to buy M-A-N-A, -A, Mana Coin, which is a decentralized coin. They bought Mona Coin. Both coins went up. The next day I was a hero. <laughs> Basically, the golden rule is don't, don't buy anything you don't understand, right? That's also check Glorian's YouTube channel. It explains everything. Vinny said it very well. He said, when, we, when you stop investing in crypto and you take some time off, you should probably go do something more responsible, like poker or roulette or... <laughs> okay, this gentleman here. Okay, good evening. My name is Valentine. My question for the panel is, uh, can government stop this party because the Bitcoin is going way, way off? Is it possible that the United States government or any government can crunch those, uh, uh, the party of uh, cryptocurrency? Then the next question is to Fazam. I believe you are from RMB. Uh, is RMB and FMB, are they not threatened by this particular technology that is going to extinct them? Um, so yeah, taking, uh, Sorry, hang on. Uh, can we just keep the answers short, please, and just one response each on a wrap-up? Okay, so taking the point on the, on the governments, um, China earlier this year has imposed a full-on ban on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and shut down a whole bunch of exchanges. Um, and yes, that is possible, but there's still kind of an OTC trade that does take place and people are able to trade without the government really knowing whether they're trading or not. So they can't really stop it outright altogether but they can impose restrictions and bans in, in terms of exchanges and, um, and what people can do online there. Anything valuable ultimately, um, if the government tries to ban it, if it's valuable enough to, to people, they'll find a way to get it. I mean, this is why we have, sadly, a, you know, a massive problem with drugs, why, we, why there's a massive black market basically for currencies, I mean, right up north. So I, I think uh, there are two things, blockchain and cryptocurrencies, and for both of those things, if you are a bank and you're not looking at either of those, then your future is not very bright. So I think every single financial institution in the world, if they plan to remain a financial institution and to meet the needs of their clients, must be looking at this. Cool. Next question. Hi, uh, my name is James. Um, so we get to we get to November next year. Tom Moyani goes, "Oh, I'm a bit short." Um, SARS is going to come for. I mean, many of the people in this room we earn money from cryptocurrency. SARS is going to come for us, and I hope that all of you earn money from cryptocurrency. Otherwise, what are you doing here? Um, in real terms, what are you guys doing to mitigate a SARS coming for you? for your cryptocurrency earnings and be a criminal offense in terms of reserve bank regulations, uh, currency. Let, let, me, regulations. let me answer that. The first thing is, the, what I'm doing about the first one is, very simple, I'm paying tax. Because it's the right thing to do, because if you don't, you'll go to jail. You can, so the law is very capital clear. gains or income tax. The law is very clear. If you if you hold it or you trade it or you hold it for short periods of time, effectively that's a income. 
So if you're in and out all the time, that's effectively income. And if you bought the asset for long-term uh, capital appreciation, and you can prove that by holding it for a long period of time, it'll probably be taxed as a capital gain, or you could make the case. There's no years. You could, it can even be six months if you can prove that your intention was to buy it for a long time, but something changed. So that's the first thing. When you talk about the South African Reserve Bank, you have not violated any laws in the South African Reserve Bank or they cannot prove that you have violated any laws. Let me ask you a question. When you take a Bitcoin and you send your Bitcoin to a wallet, where have you sent it to? Has it left the country? That's the problem. So you're not violating anything by sending Bitcoin from here to anywhere else in the world, because believe me, if you were, by now people would be in jail. The blockchain is decentralized, and therefore when you send Bitcoin to another wallet, can you prove to me where that wallet is? So right now, as the legislation stands, we're okay, providing that you're paying tax. How they're regulated going forward? Let's wait and see. Tax and ex-con. I mean, yeah. that's the, the regulator has been very clear that you cannot infringe the, the, the ex-con rules, whether it's dollars or bitcoins, so be, be careful. If you draw your money out the country, in other words, you take a bitcoin, buy it in South Africa, send it to a wallet, cash the bitcoin out in the US, you're going to jail. Simple. There's no two ways about it. Because you, you, th that what you have done is you've traded for the intention of taking money out the country. Um, there, there are a lot of smart people in this room. Why does Luno trade at a 10% premium to every other exchange in the world? It's the premium for moving your money out of the country. Okay. I know everyone's thinking it, I just said it. <laughs> Next question, please, sorry, last question, and then we're gonna wrap up. I have to just proceed what I'm saying by saying that a lot of this goes over my head because I'm actually a therapist. I do run a business. We all need But therapy. I'm looking at it, well, you might need after this, but I'm looking at it from a psychological perspective. And I think that what gets to me about this, because I'm of the generation where there was no such thing as get rich quick. I know your generation, it's very different with technology. There is such a thing as get rich quick. And I think that what this appeals to is the basis need in every human being, which is to get rich quick and make money overnight. And my question, just like you asked, who would rather take Bitcoin or gold? My question is, how many of you will stand up and guarantee this audience that in five years or 10 years, their money will have increased in value and that it will not have crashed? That's the first question. And the second question is, would you encourage people who are gonna really put their lives on the line to buy Bitcoin to do so? Or is this really an investment for the rich who can afford to invest their money, gamble, which it really is essentially, gamble their money and either get rich quick overnight or lose a lot of what they have? So in a portfolio of assets that most people have, you need to diversify your assets in such a way that you have safe assets and risky assets. On the one hand, you should have assets that are safe, 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 and on the other hand, you should have assets that are risky. And depending on how much wealth you've got, the risky part may be a bit more because first you think about covering the basics, which is eating your family with a roof over their head, et cetera, et cetera. And then you go into more and more and more luxuries. Every portfolio should have an element of risky assets in. Now, one of the guys mentioned that this week I posted a tweet and I asked what percentage of your net wealth sits in, in crypto. I was hoping to God that the answer would be under 5%. Because if everybody was under 5%, I think we're in a safe place. There were some idiots that had 100% of their wealth in crypto. 
So I think the message that I'm trying to say is what you need to do. Sorry, this is a recorded podcast, right? Okay. Well, what I think what I'm I think what I'm trying to say is that every individual must assess their own risk profile and take a portion of their portfolio and put the amount that they are willing to put in the most risky asset class in their portfolio, put that into crypto. Simple as that. And let's be very clear, there are absolutely no guarantees. So if you're hoping for a quick, uh, get rich quick scheme, uh, go for it, but there are no guarantees and you should not complain. So I think there are many good reasons why this could go up. There are many people that will say it will do the opposite. None of us can tell you which one it's going to be. So be responsible. This is one of the most volatile assets that we've ever, ever seen. So don't be silly. Be responsible. Uh, and it is risk return, but make sure that if you're going to get into the risk, you're ready for what the return might be, which might be super high or super, super low. And on that bombshell, it's time to end the Matt Brown Show. Please give our panelists a warm welcome and round of applause. Thank you. Okay, there's a whole bunch of um, crypto trader hats yeah, here. Yeah, crypto so trader hats, Bitcoin hats for anyone who wants them. No, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, yeah it does. Here we go. Throw crypto, them in the crowd. Crypto man ran on Twitter. Tweet Shameless. and you can give a cap. <laughs> Shameless. All right, thank you guys. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, please help yourself to drinks at the back. Hey guys, so live shows are an incredibly exciting space and are fantastic platforms for thought leadership, education, and ultimately raising awareness of what your brand is doing. So if you'd like to get a live show sorted out for your business, why don't you get in touch with me? Simply drop me a mail at hello at mattbrownmedia.co.za or check out our previous client podcasts for the likes of PwC, NetBank, Missing Link, and the list is growing uh, at mattbrownmedia.co.za and I will see you again soon. Ciao. The Matt Brown Show. This is the Matt Brown Show. Matt Brown Show. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.